Welcome to Gridlock Break, a no-labels podcast featuring one-hour conversations with elected officials and thought leaders from across the political spectrum. Tune in weekly to hear insightful and nonpartisan perspectives on how America can solve our toughest problems. Today, we will hear from John Anzalone, one of the nation's top pollsters and messaging strategists. He has worked on four presidential campaigns, and he was most recently the chief pollster for the Biden 2020 campaign. Today, he'll discuss the latest thinking from the White House on a COVID-19 relief bill and some recent results of public opinion polling. Let's listen in. Great. Thanks, Nancy. And thank you all again for being with us this evening. I appreciate your commitment and support and your interest. Uh, obviously, the um, all of the action is uh, is uh, surrounding the $1.9 trillion as proposed COVID relief package. Um, action was taken last week uh, to enable, although not to require, uh, this bill to move uh, through on reconciliation, which would uh, 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 leave the possibility of a straight party line vote on, on this matter. I think uh, the question at hand, which will uh, will take full shape over the course of the next couple of weeks, is whether there is a an alternative bipartisan pathway uh, that can uh, chip away at, at some of the elements here and and uh, provide another way to get to the finish line. Uh, so tonight, uh, to speak on that topic and give it give us a good sense of where the administration is, we're fortunate to have a good friend of the labels, uh, John Anzalone, uh, here with us. Uh, John is one of the nation's top pollsters. His most recent gig uh, was uh, running, polling for uh, the newly elected President Joe Biden. Uh, I think that, uh, if I'm not mistaken, is at least your fourth presidential campaign, John. So uh, he's an old hand at this, and he obviously got it right this year. Um, He's has more than 25 years of polling experience. He's a partner of ALG Research, where he and his team work closely with the Democratic Governors Association, the Democratic Senate and Congressional Campaign Committees, and the House and Senate Majority Packs. In addition to his political work, uh, John helps Fortune 500 companies with data-driven corporate strategy, messaging, and branding. He's a frequent source of information. You often see him on television. Uh, working uh, the uh, uh, the big tube, or working with New York Times, Washington Post, Politico, The Hill, Roll Call, and CNN. Uh, John is uh, born in Michigan, now in Montgomery, Alabama, and uh, it's great to have him with us. So, John, uh, if you could take ten or fifteen minutes and and share your your thoughts and insight, and then, folks, we're going to open it up for questions. Uh, processes go to chat. Uh, send a note to Liz Morrison. We'll get you queued up. Uh, and uh, we'll look forward to hearing from you. Uh, but now it's uh, floor is yours, John. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. appreciate all your work um, uh, as well. Um, you know, appreciate everyone's time and commitment um, to bipartisanship and, and, and bipartisan solutions. You know, as Andy said, I've spent my career um, uh, as a Democratic pollster, kind of known as the blue dog pollster or the moderate pollster. Um, and, you know, I believe in the same goals as you do uh, as problem solvers. Um, I was part of the 2018 No Labels program that helped to protect both Dems and Republicans in the primaries uh, and the generals. And we were really proud of that work. And we, we thank uh, No Labels and Nancy for having us as part of it because we really do believe in it. Uh, when I started my career 30 years ago, uh, there were a lot of moderates on both the Democratic 
and the uh, Republican side, uh, and it was important uh, for our country. And so what you're doing is important work, and I know it can be frustrating work uh, in this political environment. Um, you know, I, I, I'm going to state the obvious about our current political environment and then get into the COVID package, uh, the American Rescue Plan, is that, you know, I spent the last two years um, <clears throat> doing polling for President Biden, who I first met 34 years ago. This has been a long journey as a young 23-year-old um, uh, organizer in Iowa in his first presidential campaign. So I've been part of that Biden family. And once you're kind of there, you're always part of the Biden family uh, for a long time. Um, but the last two years uh, in our research, and you have all lived it and you've all watched it, is that disruption has really kind of defined, you know, the last year for America, right? And the fact is, Americans hate disruption, right? And that goes for American companies, American uh, businesses, you know, disruption, causes uncertainty and uncertainty causes anxiety and chaos. Uh, and I'm sure that you're all experiencing some of that right now. Uh, I mean, the pandemic has caused disruption in our economy and that means for working families and some now unemployed, uh, it's caused disruptions. It's caused and, and exposed certain racial inequalities in our healthcare system and our economy uh, in schooling. Uh, there's been major stresses in our healthcare system. There's been threats to our democratic institutions. It's changed how people work. Uh, it's changed how students are learning or not learning, quite frankly, uh, both in uh, K through 12 and college education. Uh, it's changed the president and the Senate. And so that's just a lot of disruption. And why I set that up that way is that what you find with voters right now is that they are in an incredibly transactional moment or mood because of this dis disruption, meaning that they want things done and they don't particularly care how they get done. Um, there's a lot of chaos in people's lives. Just watch a focus group of working women who work and also either have small kids that they can't put in daycare or kids in elementary school have, who they have to deal with online. Chaos is another word along with disruption that we hear a lot about in focus groups. And so because voters are in this transactional mood, they just want to get things done. They need help. They're asking for help. They prefer bipartisanship. They desire it. They encourage it. Um, but more than anything else, they really want action. And so for voters right now, time is of the essence. Uh, I think President Biden understands that. Um, they want the stimulus bill. And so even though this may be that done in kind of a traditional bipartisan manner, like we all want it, at least right now, um, the support for Biden's bill, the American Rescue Plan, is uniquely bipartisan with the American people. And I think that that is really important. Uh, and it's, I think it's important for us to have that conversation that while this may not get done like we all wanted to get, you all wanted to get done. Um, the fact that this is not a issue that is splitting and dividing the country, that in itself, I think will help in the future. For example, let me just give you some numbers. 72% of American voters support the American Rescue Plan, writ large or when we break it down. That includes 91% of uh, Democrats, 69% of independents. And this is really important. 
of um, um, self-ID'd Republicans. So a majority of Republicans support the Democratic president's rescue plan. And I think that that is, again, really important in this time, in this environment, for when we then move forward on other things, right? And I'm going to get to another kind of a, another point in, in terms of talking about all the other things that we have to do. When you break down each provision, and I think that this is really important too of the American Rescue Plan, you'll see that it is has high support across demographic groups, but also partisan boundaries, right? So the new stimulus checks that you know Biden is is uh, recommending fourteen hundred dollars, it gets a 78% um, support, uh, 57% strongly support that, 60% of Republicans. The vaccine funding, 57% of Republicans support that. The paid sick leave, some of these things aren't in the Republican bill, 65% of Republicans support that. Health, helping with health insurance premiums, 64%. Rental assistance, again, not in the GOP bill, 59% of Republicans support that. Um, small business owner grants, which are really, really important. Uh, Democrats and Republicans do it differently in their bills. Uh, the Republicans go through PPP. There's a little bit different uh, type of um, uh, action in the Democratic bill. 66% of Republicans support uh, the Biden uh, initiatives on small businesses. So again, I think it's really important uh, that we kind of acknowledge um, that there is real bipartisan support at the American uh, um, uh, um, uh, resident level uh, here. And I think that, that that becomes important. The other thing here is because we're in this time of disruption and time is of the essence and people really want things done, um, you know, the reality is, is that 64%, almost two thirds of Americans um, would favor rec reconciliation if it means that there's a quick passage of this bill. And again, not exactly what um, um, a, a lot of the uh, members here would like to see it do, but because we're in a crisis, and quite frankly, we're in multiple crises, we're in a COVID crisis, we're in a school crisis, we're in an economic crisis, et cetera, um, people are again um, uh, willing to move forward uh, in different uh, in different ways. Um, the, the, the thing that, again, I think that is important is that with such a high percentage of Republicans, a high percentage of independents, and a high percentage of Democrats um, supporting uh, this bill, um, you know, this is not dividing America, it's actually uniting America. And the fact is, it's also, because of its popularity, not defining this administration's um, efforts in the long run for bipartisanship. And that's really one of the big messages that I want to send here today, um, because I think the narrative out there is three weeks in that somehow bipartisanship is dead. And that is just, that, that's not a fair narrative. It's not one I think that uh, is reality. And because the issue at hand is so unifying to the country, there's great hope for what comes next and what role no labels will play in this administration, both in the House, uh, in the Senate for um, what's up. I mean, again, we're three weeks into this, right? Into this administration, uh, that's number one. Um, you know, we uh, also have a president who had 44 years as either a Senator or a vice president 
who was known as reaching across party line, committed to bipartisanship, um, and I don't think will quite frankly ever get up on it. Um, there are major problems in this country above the stimulus relief that need to be solved that I think Democrats and Republicans um, can and should uh, get together on. And so once we get past stimulus, yes, there probably is going uh, to be some hard feelings, um, but the American people will be ready for bipartisanship, continued bipartisanship on the next big issues. I mean, when you think about the Biden administration issues, they fall perfectly in line with bipartisanship. Immigration, as you know, as part of the business community, is one of the business community's number one issues. I mean, as a matter of fact, immigration is a bipartisan issue because of the leadership in the business community, quite frankly. Bush almost got it done. McCain wanted to get it done. And it can get done with the support uh, of the business community. Infrastructure, a hugely bipartisan uh, uh, effort. We know that it's incredibly uh, important for individual states, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. Uh, it helps the economy. It drives the economy and creates opportunities. It, it's so uh, important. There's still a lot more to be done uh, on the small business front. Uh, if you, um, you know, detail the Build Back Better plan for the economy, there's a lot of uh, common ground uh, that uh, Democrats and Republicans uh, can, can get to. And I would also say even issues that tend to be thought of as partisan, but climate change uh, with most of my corporate clients, quite frankly, it is a goal. And I think that we're going to see here in the future that um, climate change will be much more of a bipartisan effort, uh, as well as healthcare. So I have real hope, and I hope that you do too, that this is truly um, the beginning. We're three weeks in. Uh, there are big, big things to do. Um, Americans are in this transactional mode. They want everyone to work together. And once we get past this first um, uh, stimulus bill, which quite frankly, in some ways, is being driven, let's not forget, by unemployment uh, checks or, or ex extensions end on March 14th. That's one of the reasons you have to get this done quickly. But I really have hope that, there, that this is really uh, just a bump in the road and that bipartisanship and what you're doing uh, is going to rule the day uh, with all of these important issues. So, Andy, with that, i am just throw it back at you. And I think we're going to have a conversation. Great, John. Thank you so much. Uh, very encouraging message. A, a nice, uh, nice way to begin our evening here. Um, so I'm going to uh, uh, call on folks. Uh, please identify where you're from. We've got a national audience tonight, so we'd like to hear where you're calling in from. And we're going to start with Glenn Lowenstein, followed by Mark Lieberman. Uh, Glenn, how you doing? Hi, good. Thank you, Andy. And John, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for that explanation of kind of Biden's strategy. Um, I, I, with all due respect, wish that it rang true for me. But my question to you is, you probably helped write his inaugural address. I have it in front of me. He used the, the word unity seven times. And and you make the argument that unity exists in the American public. I think that that may be true because you're giving a lot of money out, but there's symbolism in the Senate and in the House. And what part of unity reconciles with a partisan vote? Well, here's, I mean, listen, Glenn, I appreciate that. And, and again, thank you for having me. 
Um, and, and I, I, I feel the frustration there. Um, but I, you know, it is, it takes two to tango. Um, and the fact is, is that we're in a crisis and Biden has a, I think a very good, um, handle on what the needs are, um, to get this thing done quickly. And the fact is, is that if you take a look at the bill and you and I may disagree on this and that's fine. What the Republican, where the Republican bill starts out at 600 billion and 1.9 billion, and what the Republican bill leaves out, maybe they could have gotten to the middle, uh, maybe not, right? Uh, I mean, if you believe, if you're a Republican governor, you believe that state and local aid is really important in this crisis, and the Republican bill leaves that out. You know, if you are a Republican uh, superintendent in Macomb County at a school, you know, you believe that $20 billion is not going to cut it, but $170 billion is if you really want to get schools open. So the fact is, is that I think that we get caught up in the process. I think we get caught up in the politics. My bigger message is, is that, well, yes, unity was an important part of our, um, 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 of our campaign. Uh, at the end of the day, voters you know, said one of the main reasons that they would vote for Biden is unity that I don't think that this one vote defines the unity and bipartisanship that's to come if 70% of Americans are on Biden's side on this. And, you know, 53% of Republican uh, are on his side. And yet there's not one Republican House member or Senator who's on, on the side of those 53% of Republicans. And so, you know, it's maddening, I get it. Um, but I, I do think that when you look at the comparisons of the two bill, and you may have this feeling of like, where would have Republicans have gotten to? Would they have gotten to 700 million, 900 million? And what, what would you have given up for that? Would you have given up the childcare stuff, the health care subsidies? I mean, there's, you know, the list in the list. And so um, at the end of the day, um, you know, I do believe that the American public supporting this at a, at a high level um, creates a sense of unity that Biden will not get uh, demerits for it. He will maybe in this city, um, but I don't think he'll, he, he will out there in the uh, into hinterlands. Glenn, thanks for your question. Glenn's from Houston. I'm not sure why he was. Oh, there. sorry. I didn't. <laughs> thanks, Glenn. Uh, Mark Lieberman is up, but Carla Odell is uh, uh, on deck. Mark, tell us where you're from. Um, the, the ski area now known as New York City, uh, where we've been deluged uh, in snow. Um, and thanks, John, for, uh, for coming on. Um, as, as you well know, and you've said, this group and Problem Solvers Caucus and the bicameral played a pivotal F, uh, um, role in getting the last stimulus bill passed. And certainly, as you echoed, President Biden has talked about bipartisanship and unity, and he's embodied that throughout his career except it seems that he is being pulled by the Democratic leadership to really go it alone under reconciliation. And so, um, as you said, uh, this may be the path that the president decides to take, but why doesn't this set a precedent in the wrong direction for bipartisanship, whether it's in this town or across the country where certainly we wanna be done with the divisiveness that we've seen over the last number of years, how can we be confident that it won't set the wrong precedent? Yeah, no, listen, you know, I can't say that. It, I think that it will for a certain segment of this city, 
I mean, you know, without a doubt. Why I don't think that it will set precedent in the long run is the support that it has um, with the public. I think that if this was a bill, you know, I mean, you, we can make a bill up here that was incredibly controversial, you know, government run healthcare or something like that. And that was pushed through where a majority of Americans uh, um, didn't support it. That would be a real problem and it would set a precedent. Or if there was a Republican side of it and it was, you know, the building the wall and it was, it was, uh, it was rammed through. That's that type of thing uh, is incredibly divisive. Uh, I mean, you see it with, you know, uh, sometimes Supreme Court justices, et cetera. But this isn't a divisive bill, and therefore it's divisive in some ways within the Republican caucuses, um, but it's not even divisive with their constituencies back home. And so I hope it doesn't set precedent, right? Um, and I actually, the only other thing I would say, uh, Mark, is that I don't think that Biden, this is my personal opinion, I don't believe Biden is being pulled by the Democratic leaders. I actually think that this is what Biden believes, that he is a president who is following a president who he believes mishandled uh, the COVID response um, and that they have a lot of ground to make up and that time uh, is of the essence and they need to get this done. And that if they weren't gonna, if they don't do it this way, they're not gonna meet the, the um, uh, unemployment deadline. They probably will not get checks in hands and they won't, you know, they will just delay the pain and suffering of the American people. So I believe that Joe Biden is driving this because he has this keen sense of the despair that you know millions and millions, tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions, a hundred million Americans are feeling right now. Mark, thanks for your question. Uh, next up is Carla O'Dell and John uh, Gillis is on deck. Carla, tell us where you're from. I'm from Houston, Texas, John. Wow, uh, we got to the second Houston, Texas. Okay. Um, got a two-part question for you. The first part is, are there is there any opportunity to disaggregate the elements of the bill so that the things that are so clearly in agreement, the national vaccination program, the extension of the unemployment benefits, and perhaps even the more controversial yeah. pieces, yeah. what's the limit on, that's so that's sure. question sure. one. And question number two, since you're so good, and I really mean that sincerely, what can, if suppose he doesn't disaggregate and suppose it appears that it was not done in a bipartisan manner, um, is there something we can do to change the rhetoric and get rid of these win-lose optics? Because it's not helpful. And, the, and what happens in D.C. does matter. That's going to happen for the future. Yeah. I'm very concerned about this. Yeah. Well, Carla, thanks for that. I do want to say one Houston thing, one of my favorite bipartisan events. I do the Jim Baker Institute conference in Houston every year. And he is a remarkable man. Um, I love, I'm one of the Democratic consultants who, I've done it twice, I'll, I'll do it a third time when we can. Uh, and it's wonder, wonderful to go on Rice University's campus. And it's just wonderful to be around Jim Baker. I mean, like that is quite frankly uh, special. Um, uh, so listen, the, the segregating them out, I think that there's a couple things that might or might not happen. I don't know anything that you don't know. I mean, the parliamentarian very well may um, take away the uh, um, a minimum wage increase, right? Um, and I quite frankly, that very, you know, I mean, Biden has even mentioned, you no, know, being that kind of the, the senator that he is, 
the former senator, that that might happen and it's up to the parliamentarian. Um, I also would say, should say that there has been tweaks to the Democratic bill. And some of that is, you know, quite frankly, I won't say pressure from the Republicans, but there's been changes to the threshold for the, you know, where, uh, in terms of where the, the money goes, et cetera. Um, and again, depending on whether someone like Manchin bolts or not, I don't think he will, um, maybe there will have to be some, some changes. So I think that, that that's all to be seen out of our control, um, but I think that the president is committed to get this done. And if that means reconciliation, that's what he's gonna do. Um, the, the second part is the rhetoric. And I actually think that the answer about the rhetoric is Joe Biden. Um, I don't think that he has used heightened rhetoric about the stimulus plan, or by the way, if you've seen any of his um, comments about impeachment, I mean, he says every day he has a job to do, you know, 450,000 people have, have died. You know, he's got to get needles in people's arms. He's got to get aids to states to do that. He's got to get uh, checks in people's um, uh, bank accounts. He's got to get money into schools so they can uh, reopen. And so I think that the, the, the tone change, and even if you're a Republican, I hope people feel just the tone change when they wake up in the morning uh, and they're not worried about what has been said. Um, you know, this is a guy who has kept his head down, who's done, I think, a really good job of delegating and letting his main expert speak, whether it's on COVID or, the, or yelling at the treasury or whatever, uh, and him just doing his job and, you know, uh, uh, I think that that's important, but I think that that is the, I think that that is the biggest component of what you're talking about of the rhetoric. Uh, Gretchen Whitmer is a, is a client of mine. And, and as she always says, is just like, take, you know, take a little bit of the heat away, right. You know, just, you know, take that heat level down. And I think Biden has done that from day one. Carla, thanks for your question. Uh, John Grillos, uh, you're up, Bob Tuttle on deck. Uh, John, tell us where you're from. Uh, yeah, John Grillo from Sonoma, California. John, appreciate your comments. I, I, um, I, I guess it's a question of these poll numbers that you indicated, I thought were very interesting and a little surprising uh, in the sense that I just wonder how, how detailed those polls get about the implications of spending this much money down the road. For example, just recently, I think today or yesterday, the Congressional Budget Office said you have a minimum wage of $15 an hour, you'll, live eight, you'll lift 800,000 800, people out of poverty and put 1.2 million out of work. Yeah. And, uh, then when you add things like you know inflation, servicing the debt if interest rates go up and the other things that are down the road and pushing out, quite frankly, infrastructure and environmental things. Yeah. I just wonder how much of that gets treated in these polls that, that have yeah. the, the high support. <laughs> I was ready for you, John. I was ready for you on this. <laughs> and I want to come visit you, like all of us want to come visit you because you live in Sonoma. Um, but uh, uh, here's the thing. And again, I really believe it's because of the pain that people are suffering um, and, you know, really going uh, paycheck to paycheck and the anxiety about the future. And right when people think things are going, going to be okay, they get the, you know, the vaccine comes out. And then what happens, we get these variants and there's like curveball after curveball. And, you know, most of us on this call are, are probably really comfortable uh, in our incomes and our lifestyles. And, I, I, and, and I'll tell you, that's one of the things about being a pollster and talking 
you know, to, you know, everyday people and watching focus groups and things like that. There's just a lot of, of hurt out there. And so when we ask these two different questions uh, about the price, there's actually 62% of people are more worried that the government will not do enough when we talk about the amount of money, right, to help regular people get back um, um, on their feet versus that the federal government will spend too much money as a result of the coronavirus and put, push the country further into debt. So only 38% pick that choice, right? When we ask it a different way, uh, support or oppose, 70% um, would favor a $4 trillion plan over a smaller relief package that you know, provides uh, economic stimulus, but adds less to the national debt. And so this is, may not, again, this is not new to me because I've been testing on the debt for a long time, that this is not necessarily on people's heightened concern list. We see some of the debt concern go up in the most important issue problem, mostly with uh, Republicans, mostly with uh, men, white men uh, over the age of 50. And so you and I know it's a policy concern in the long run, um, but uh, it certainly wasn't a big concern uh, 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 with, with uh, Congress in the first two. And we know that there's, there's a real need out there. So on the voter side, it's not a big concern because they're hurting. Uh, and, and that doesn't, I'm not saying that whether it's, I'm not going to make a judgment, good policy, bad policy. I understand what you're saying. Um, but, um, you know, the debt does not seem to be in the front mirror, uh, of people's minds right now. Thank you. John, thanks for your question. Uh, Bob Tuttle, you're up, uh, Jeff Rosen on deck. Bob, tell us where you're from. You uh, it's Bob, Bob Tuttle. I'm sitting on the beach in Santa Barbara, watching a, a beautiful, beautiful sunset. Um, I have really two questions. Do you think that um, in the process of reconciliation, this amount of money, uh, which I believe is $1,400 that could go to a couple earning up to 300,000, that that 300,000 will be um, reduced? Um, and secondly, um, I agree with you that the Republican proposal was sort of ridiculous. Do you think that there's any chance for a compromise between one trillion and one and a half trillion dollars? Um, I, I think that I could be wrong, um, Bob, but I thought, I think that the number has moved down now, um, in terms of over the last 24 hours, I, I could be wrong, but I, I, I think we'll just need to Google that because I think that that number has gone down and there'll be phase outs, right. Uh, on who can, on who can get the check. I think that the combination will now be 150. Um, but that number may actually um, uh, uh, that may actually um, uh, uh, go down. I think that anything is possible. I mean, until you have a vote, right? Um, I mean, Nancy and I were were talking earlier. I mean, the House will pass this out uh, uh, a little easier, and then you know the, it'll come to the Senate, and you know you're in a 50-50 situation, so you can't lose uh, a Democrat. Um, and you know, so we'll see whether there's any Democrat who uh, might be taking a stand to get something changed uh, uh, like you're talking about. But I think that we have, you know, we have a week or so before, well, actually it would be closer to two weeks before we'll know uh, the answer to that. Uh, thanks for the question. Uh, Jeff Rosen, you're up. Bonnie McGrath, you're on deck. Jeff, tell us where you're from. Thanks very much. I'm from New York City, um, which somebody described as the snow capital of the world. I'm not so sure, but maybe I'm wrong. 
Uh, two quick observations, two quick questions. Observation number one, uh, I think one of your pollster counterparts, Frank Luntz, is much more pessimistic about the outlook for bipartisanship than you've expressed yourself to be. Mm -hmm. Second observation is one could make the case, perhaps mistakenly, that had Nancy Pelosi been, a, been willing to be a little bit more accommodative <clears throat> in the fall, some of the money that you're suggesting needs to get into people's hands today might have gotten into it earlier. Debatable presumption. Question number one, the uh, polling results that you described um, that show bipartisanship for this particular piece of legislation, why doesn't that translate into more Republican support for it? Because in the end, Republicans are political animals. They'd like to get reelected. This vote could come back to haunt them. These are people from a lot of their constituencies, unless of course they're from constituencies like New York and California, which aren't necessarily representative of the constituencies of all the Republicans. So that's the first question. The second question goes to your observation about the potential for bipartisanship on a number of other issues, infrastructure, for example. There, I just say the devil is in the detail. A lot of people would say, sure, infrastructure is a great idea. Sure, immigration policy is a great idea. But what what's the detail in the question that was asked of them that would lead you to the conclusion that there's solid bipartisanship there? Okay, yeah, no, thanks, Jeff. Well, on the first question about why the Republicans don't do it, um, I think that there's one answer, which is my assessment doing this over the last 30 years and how, how, how elections have changed. And part of that is also driven by the Republicans over the last decade, maybe more, absolutely winning the redistricting wars at the state level. And so if you take a look at Republican caucus, there, you know, I mean, there's always frontline, you know, swing districts. Let's not, you know, that, that, that's important. But a super majority of Republican congressional districts are super safe. And so those members are not worrying about general election um, voters. They're not worrying about swing voters or independent voters. They're very concerned about getting a primary, a Republican primary. And I think that that dynamic has really changed things in Congress. Now, you can make the same argument, not quite to that, that, that extent, by the way, with the, with the Democratic caucus, but not at the level of that. And I think that, quite frankly, um, uh, gerrymandering, whether it's Democrats or Republicans, has really shrunk the number of toss-up seats, and therefore, people are just worrying about their primaries, right? And that's a problem. Uh, and that's why they don't have to worry about the 70% who supports it, et cetera. Now, one other observation, I know this is less an observation, but this is really what I think is the uh, challenge for Republicans in 2022, is that they just assume that if you have a Democratic president, historical trends say that you're going to have a good year for Republicans in your congressional races, especially in the Senate. Forgetting that all the rules seem to have been thrown out in the last two or four years, okay? And that voters are in a transactional environment or mood. They want to get things done. And if Republicans appear to continue to be obstructionist on really popular things, 
I think that they very well uh, may be may uh, cause them real problems um, in the Senate and House races in 2022. And so I think that they have to rethink about how they approach bipartisanship in their on these important popular issues themselves, because I don't think that they will get um, a pass on being obstructionist like they have been in the past. Um, on the details, listen, I, I agree with you. It, it's, it's always in the details. Um, what I think is interesting about the rescue, this rescue plan is when you take, you know, when you do the details, some of those numbers I was telling you, they're all incredibly popular, right? Even among Republicans at 50% or more, except for maybe the minimum wage. Um, and therefore, whether it's infrastructure, I mean, if you're doing an infrastructure plan, you know, Bob, what, what's going to be the big topic? Are we going to increase the gas tax, right? I mean, when we have low prices, et cetera, et cetera. Will that be an issue? Yes, it's going to be an issue. You can't build roads without funding. So, you know, um, so yes, it's going to always uh, be in the details. I think that Republicans have just as much to gain on DACA uh, uh, as Democrats. I think that on a broader immigration bill, um, if you are a business, whether you're a tech business or a poultry uh, company um, and you're, you know, a Republican or a Democratic businessman, there's a lot that you want out of that immigration bill. And so we have had structures before that have gotten close. Um, and yes, it, it's in the details, um, but it's really also in the rhetoric, right? Because you can have a great immigration bill that is supported pathway to citizenship that's supported by high, uh, high levels of voters. But if it's only branded on the other side as amnesty, then we have rhetorical problems that cause political problems. Jeff, thanks for your questions. Uh, Bonnie McGrath, you're next. Uh, Pam Humphrey, uh, you'll follow. Uh, Bonnie, where are you from? Hi, everybody. I'm I'm actually Bonnie Spear McGrath, but that's okay. You can, right. you can call me whatever you want, Andy. I'm from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I'm I'm one of those uh, Republicans, longtime Republicans who voted for Biden, and that's largely because of how you know how moderate he is and because I am such a believer in bipartisan leadership. So I am very disappointed in, in what you're saying, not disappointed in you personally, but I'm very disappointed because the polling numbers that you're saying aren't what I'm finding from my friends who voted for either, you know, uh, who, who voted for Biden and my democratic friends who, who voted for Biden as well. And I guess I'm hopeful that some Democrats might step up to the plate and say, hey, we need some bipartisan um, support here because it feels more like more of the same. And Biden is the kind of leader uh, that I, I really felt like he was the kind of leader that wouldn't take all the power, you know, to be a leader and have the power, um, I think, using reconciliation isn't going to, you know, isn't going to be very helpful. So I guess I, I just wanted to throw out there as somebody that had a lot of high hopes, I think when you don't build that muscle for bipartisanship and you, uh, you know, I love Amanda Garman's poem that we will not march back, you know, to what was. This feels like marching back to what was. And these other topics that are coming up, immigration and climate change and healthcare are going to be so much harder than this. 
we could so easily come to agreement on vaccine rollout, COVID testing, and, and other pieces. So I just, I know that's more of a comment than a question, but it's just a frustration for somebody who sure. really tried to bring a lot of people to this at great um, political risk to myself. Yeah. All right. Bonnie Spear McGrath. This is because <laughs> this is what I would say. I feel like a life coach right now. Uh, this is what I would say. One, thank you for your vote. Two, um, you know, uh, I, I would say I would I would ask that you give Biden a, uh, a crisis exemption or a crisis mulligan. Um, and, you know, again, I think that um, hopefully because I have that hope um, that once we get past this first big um, need for the American people that, you know, that we get into that muscle memory that you're talking about. And, you know, I, I think the thing that frustrates me the most is not with you, but with just the narrative in, in DC is that this somehow is going to define the entire presidency. And I think that that is unfair because I think that, you know, we're three weeks in um, and he's also getting criticism for a technique that Republicans have used for every time that they, they've been in, in power. And I know that doesn't excuse it, but when they were doing it, they, it wasn't, it, they weren't dealing with three or four crises. And so um, I do think that, um, uh, I hope that uh, he gets a little, little room here um, to then come back um, and, and show the bipartisan muscle. Ani, thank you uh, for, your, uh, for your comment. Um, John, let me let me follow up if I if I might. Uh, one of the things that I think for many of us is most disturbing is not just this first one, uh, big as it is, uh, but that uh, what is emanating out of um, Washington is uh, the uh, uh, statements and comments that this is going to be the pathway through which Democratic leadership uh, pushes uh, the totality of their agenda. Um, I don't know if that is being spread by Republicans or Democrats, yeah. uh, but but how would you respond to that concern that um, this is uh, this is going to be the tool uh, to yeah. uh, pass a legislative agenda that uh, may increasingly skew left as uh, the left wing of the party uh, gets uh, more empowered and, and louder as the year goes on? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that I don't believe that that is the tone or of the administration. Um, I don't think that they've signaled that in any way. Um, and I would also say, you know, just on, on the left sided stuff is that even in the American Rescue Act, again, when you take a look at each of the individual components, there's nothing in there that I would call liberal or conservative. Right. I mean, they're all they're all just kind of basic stuff. Um, and they're when you're getting, you know, support for, you know, most of the individual components somewhere between 60 and, you know, 75, 76 percent of the American public, the American public doesn't look at that as left, you know, or right or, or, or middle. Um, and so I think that that, again, the fact that this is so supported, um, you know, will help down the line. But I don't believe, and, and this is how this place works, maybe Andy, right? You know, I don't believe that the administration in any way beyond this has said, this is how they're going to do business, you know, for their four years. Thanks, John. Uh, next up uh, is uh, Pamela Murphy. 
I'm sorry, Pamela Humphrey from Boston, uh, followed by Lynn Chang. Pamela, floor is yours. Thank you. Hi, John. Thank you so Thank much you. for joining us today. I I must say I was uh, I was I found the your the statistics on the uh, on the polling that you did interesting actually. Um, I have some questions about that. Um, I don't know totally what's in this bill, and I think I'm not sure how many of us do. But um, when you ask these questions. Uh, the the things that people you can the things that I can understand people would really rally around are some of the critical issues like the vaccination rollout the schools the you know all that kind of stuff I mean it's hard to argue that the question is what else is in there that people right. didn't know about and so they're saying oh I'm all for that but how much in fact do they know about what's in it and the other thing is is in this bill is there any accountability that's been added to it uh, around how the money is being spent. We, we know that there are billions of dollars from the past bills that haven't been spent. And where is it? Where is it going? How's it being handled? Where's the accountability for it? Um, I think the other thing I'd like to ask, is there anything, um, did you ask any questions about the non-citizen immigrant issue and monies? Uh, you know, money going to non-citizens. Yeah. So no, I have. I don't know to have numbers on that. Um, uh, so I, I, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know about that. When the first question, let me get to the first question, um, which is we broke down ten different things, um, and therefore there's not. I don't. There's not. Those are all the major things. There's not many things left out of what we tested. Not saying that they're. You know there's major, if you take a look, if you Google comparisons between Biden's uh, um, uh, package and the GOP package, there's some really great articles. The Wall Street Journal does a fantastic comparison. Um, CNN does a fantastic comparison. If you want two different kind of places to go, one kind of more uh, Republican, one more Democrat. Um, and they detail kind of, you know, almost to, to the penny uh, how this adds up. And so we did that too, in terms of these 10 things um, that that we tested. I'm sure that we left for potentially some things out, but I would say that we probably tested 90% of what's in there. You ask about accountability. I wish I had an answer for you on that. And I don't, um, you know, I mean, clearly there's accountability provisions through, you know, the GAO and, and each individual uh, department and how money gets sent to the states. Um, but I wish I had a better answer for you, but but I just don't. Okay, thank you. What about, oh, I want, the other thing was the non-citizen immigrants. I haven't, I haven't seen that tested. I, I you know, sure. you know, my, you know, I, I don't know where people would land on that. Uh, it may surprise you, quite frankly, in terms of, uh, of the support for it. Um, my guess is it would be fairly close to a 50-50 proposition. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Uh, Pam, thanks. Thanks for the question. Uh, next up, uh, Lynn Schenk from San Diego, and then uh, uh, Jim Frank. Lynn, how are you? John, first of all, thank you so much. Uh, really appreciate your time, and I hope that you'll join us uh, more frequently. This is very enlightening. Uh, let, let me just, I think I probably have more of a comment than I do a, a question. Uh, I endorsed and supported Joe Biden before he even announced 
and co-sponsored his only San Diego fundraiser. So I fervently hope that you're right and I'm wrong, fervently hope. But uh, when I was elected to Congress, uh, when Bill Clinton was elected president, we had both the House and the Senate. And I came from a red district as a Democrat. And in a conversation with Tom Foley early on, I said, look, you know, mo most Americans are incrementalists. They talk a good game about wanting big change, but they really don't. Uh, let's do some things. That, let's pretend we're all from Missouri. We're all the show me state people. Uh, show me that, you, th that I can trust you to govern. Uh, Tom didn't quite agree. He felt we had a mandate to do some things uh, that, and, and the president uh, in those first weeks and, and admittedly we didn't have COVID and we didn't have, we're not post-Trump, uh, but we did some things that I believe laid the seeds for Gingrich to do what he did then in 95 and we lost both the House and, and the Senate. So what people are saying to you, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, I really ask that if, 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 to the extent you have the president's ear or his advisor's ear, let's do some things that everybody agrees on. And, and, not, and, and I know we're talking now about taking out the, the minimum wage. You know, when so many people are unemployed, the minimum wage issue is like, really, why are we doing that? The, the shots in the arm, kids in the school, money in the bank account, these are the sort of the, the show me kinds of things yeah. get done. And uh, so, uh, again, I hope you are right and I am wrong. But out here in the hinterlands of uh, Southern California, real Southern California, these issues uh, are, are much top of mind for both Democrats, Republicans and a lot of independents. Yeah. Well, well, you know, Congressman, you were first Lynn, of your service, Lynn, but you were there when, you know, I mean, there was real bipartisan bills, not unlike what we're dealing with now. You had, if I remember correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, welfare reform was a really good example when you were in Congress, where Democrats and Republicans came uh, together. I, I find immigration, the immigration bill very close to that in some ways, right? It can be a wedge issue if you make it a wedge issue. And it can be a really good um, policy if you make it really good policy. Um, there were other times, clearly, when Clinton and, and Gingrich had to come together. And and uh, but but your your broader point is your is is well taken. Uh, and again, it's 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 to be seen. You know, uh, it, it's it's uh, it's to be seen. And in, in, in like I think it was Bob said, you know, it's also in the details. Lynn, thanks for your uh, your question, your insight. Uh, uh, Jim, uh, Frank, and Karen, before I call on you, um, I know we have uh, a special guest I just noticed on, on the tote board here, uh, Congressman Jared Golden, who is uh, a problem solver of the first rank. Um, a, uh, uh, he has served his country uh, in the military and now in Congress, uh, one of my favorite guys in Congress, he represents the largest geographic uh, district east of the Mississippi, about two thirds of the state of Maine. Um, Congressman Golden, uh, welcome. I don't know if you wanna uh, say hi to uh, uh, folks on the phone, a bunch of your supporters, and, and maybe you can give us a little bit of a flavor of where you think uh, we are now and what your hopes may be for being able to uh, push this forward in a more bipartisan fashion. 
Sure, I appreciate that, uh, Andy, and, and, and good to be here, and great opportunity to, to listen in to, to some of the polling, uh, which you know I, I really appreciate. Um, I think people have asked great questions tonight, uh, and certainly uh, raised uh, some some good concerns. Uh, you know, some of them being uh, you got to get into the details, of course. Uh, in, in in my opinion, and in, in my experience. Uh, I don't know how this ages uh, over time. Uh, and I think uh, that's probably one of the, the biggest concerns. I think I've expressed to some members of, of the group, uh, you know, I have a saying uh, that I learned in the United States Marines, uh, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. And when you think about the needs of the country, uh, in my opinion, uh, which are great, uh, you can't fix it all in two years. Uh, and as I think about the longer term approach uh, that I hope to see Democrats take in, in Washington over these next two years, uh, it's to meet the need uh, that is out there in responding to COVID uh, and the economy, making investments in things like infrastructure. But it's also a concern that if we don't do it right, if we don't sequence it right, if we don't find a way to get some Republican buy-in, not just voters, but uh, their representatives, uh, we could lose the House and the Senate, perhaps both, uh, one or the other. And that certainly would put a real hamper on the ability of President Biden to govern. Uh, so that's how I think about it. Let's play the long, long-term approach here and think about the needs of the country in that four-year increment, preferably eight, uh, in, in my opinion. Uh, and that's why I think this decision right out of the gate is such a monumental one. I do have concerns uh, about the lack of pursuing a bipartisan deal. I also sometimes question the logic uh, of whether or not budget reconciliation is truly faster when you think about getting shots into the arms of the American people, uh, when you think about rapidly increasing testing uh, and getting PPE into the hands of our healthcare professionals and others. Uh, you know, perhaps the economic portions of, of this uh, don't need to move so quickly, particularly because the first real deadline is the unemployment one. Um, anyways, I'm I, I've appreciated the opportunity to, to listen, listen in. We don't have a bill yet. We don't have bill text. Uh, I think we'll see that bill text come out of committee in the House uh, by week's end. And that's when I really think we'll start to see where uh, some of my Democratic colleagues are, what their comfort level is with it. Uh, some of them thinking that perhaps uh, this thing moves closer to what some of our Republican colleagues are looking for with support, while others clearly anticipate it to actually get bigger uh, and, and further away. So the outcome uh, not set yet, uh, but I, I don't know uh, that I, I know clearly uh, just yet what the path forward is in the House, whether or not it, it is an easy one uh, or perhaps more, more difficult. But uh, I think you all know from my vote, it's quite clear I, I would have gone a different direction and uh, use that 600 billion put forward by the Senate as, as, a, as a floor. Uh, in the 1.9 uh, trillion uh, as a ceiling and see what we can get. There's a lot of smart uh, groups, economists and others out there who are throwing out uh, potential compromises. Um, but that can only happen if there uh, is a real willingness on both sides of the aisle. And I, and I think it exists. Congressman, thank you. Uh, you, uh, you nailed it. Uh, before you got to Congress, you, you demonstrated your courage. Uh, if there was any doubt, uh, you show it again and again. Uh, you showing up every day with uh, with tough votes and and with great leadership. So thank you so much for 
all you've done and what you're continuing to do. Uh, we have time for one last question. Uh, so let me turn back to uh, Jim and Karen Crank from Chicago. Jim? Yeah, Jim Frank from Chicago. Uh, John, I was wondering if you would mind sharing with us the exact questions that you asked on your survey, because I don't really think that there's a difference uh, in terms of the subject matters that should be addressed. So I don't think it's surprising that if you ask Republicans, should we help schools that they would say yes, uh, or should we help governments that uh, are in trouble financially uh, that they would say yes. The issue seems to me to be the quantity, not the, issue, not the question you're asking. Uh, you painted it as very black and white when you said, for example, well, ask a school superintendent in Austin if he needs money, uh, it's easy to say yes. But when the CBO says that the schools need $20 billion and you have a, and a, you have a bill that allows 140 billion, that's not consistent with simply saying that schools need more money. Uh, and I think the real difference is in the dollars, not the subjects. And so it's not, it's not surprising at all that you came back with Republicans that are in support of all those subject matters. Um, well, I, let me tell you what, Jim, I'll make sure that Nancy, if she can send around, because there's a, there's a ton of data on there. It's not my data. Like you can, you know, you can look at Monmouth, you can look at Navigator, you can look at Ipsos, and I'll let you make your own decision of, of what you think is and is not the right wording, et cetera. Um, sometimes they put dollar amounts in it, sometimes they don't. They tested, for example, a $4 trillion package and nearly 60 something percent of people uh, su supported it. So we, we can get you all of the numbers uh, and you know you can you can look at it look at it over, um, but it does not take away from the fact that I think that you know whether you're Congressman Goldman or you're you're a Democrat or you're Republican you're Biden etc. That voters are in this transactional mode of wanting real things done and they want help. And for example, you mentioned schools and you mentioned the CBO. Not exactly how I approach it because you couldn't even do the proper testing if you've, if you've uh, looked at this number for $20 billion. So schools need a heck of a lot more than just the right testing protocols. They need, a, you know, they need funding on a lot of different levels. And so I don't think that anyone that, you know, is in the education field um, believes that the Republican plan of 20, 20 or 22 billion uh, is adequate to get schools open if your goal is to get schools open in a proper way in this pandemic. Now, you may not believe that 170 is the right number and maybe it's somewhere in between. Um, but the fact is, is that we, we can get you all that, that, that information and you can, you can make the decision whether you think it's proper methodology. Jim, thanks for the question. Uh, the real issue is, is how much, not which subject matters. Gotcha. Um, Jim, thanks. And uh, let me uh, close us out uh, this evening, first by thanking uh, John Anzalone. John, you've been a great friend of No Labels. Uh, we're going to continue to call on you for guidance and, uh, and, and input, and we appreciate all, all you do. Uh, thank you for being here this evening with our supporters around the country. Uh, for all of you on the phone, uh, thank you for your continued support. Um, it is critical to our mission. 
Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break on No Labels Podcast.